The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, good morning. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, though I will admit I was tempted on the way over here as before I walked in and felt uh, how humid it was in the room. I was tempted to ask you to turn to Genesis 6 because all the rain, it felt like a flood sermon would be more appropriate today. When I got in here, I thought maybe we should study hell. But anyway, it's... I hate heat. That's why I say that. You're wondering, because not only am I just a generally a hot nature person, but then I have to stand next to this thing. And if you've never walked up here and put your hand, you don't feel the hot air vent that's right here beside me blowing very warm air right into my face during the whole time I preach. So if it gets too hot, I can just back up or move over to the side. But uh, yeah, we'll be okay here in a few minutes. We're in Genesis 3 today, getting back to... uh, our study, several of you asked if we were feeling all better at our house. We are. The Skirties now have it, so you can pray for them. Uh, Frank sounds like he swallowed a frog, and uh, he looked worse than that. So pray for them. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 with me, please. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be coming back to chapter 3 to continue our study and trying to understand what happened to this perfect world that you had made. We know the answer, Lord, that it's sin, that because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against you, everything that you had made, everything that you had designed, this beautiful, perfect paradise that you had given them was destroyed. Because they did not want to live under your rule and reign, because they did not want to obey your word and will, you gave them the just consequences of their desires. And so this morning now, Lord, as we stop and we look specifically at your words to Adam and Eve here in the text, I pray that you will help us to understand not only, not only what happened in the past, not only what we see around us today, but Lord, more than that, help us to get a glimpse of your larger plan for us and for this world. Help us to be able to read these words, to see these verses through the lens of Jesus so that we can understand that you are in control at all times and all ways, even, even when things go terribly wrong, such as what we've seen here in chapter 3. And so, Father, increase our faith this morning, increase our hope, increase our commitment to live for you in every way we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been taking a break from uh, Genesis last week and, and looking at uh, Psalm 127. I thought it'd be helpful this morning to begin by just simply trying to rehearse a little bit in our minds what we saw two weeks ago so that we can pick back up this morning. We began uh, last time by just simply explaining the need for us to be precise in our speech when we talk about Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 to 24. That section of scripture is often referred to by a title. Does anyone remember what that title was? We call it the curse. Okay, That's oftentimes how it's referred to. But the problem with that is, as we look through the text, we see that the text only says that there are two things cursed, specifically cursed by God in those verses. Number one, you see that the serpent is cursed in verse 14. And number two, you see that the ground is cursed in verse 17. Adam and Eve themselves are never cursed by God here in these verses. And so I think it is inappropriate for us to call this whole section the curse. And so if this isn't the curse, then what is it? And what I told you last time was that rather than seeing this as a curse against Adam and Eve for their sin, what we really need to understand here is that God is making a pronouncement of what 
life will be like here in this new world of sin that Adam and Eve have chosen. Because they chose to rebel against God's word and will, against his rule and reign, certain consequences are just naturally going to come from that. You you can't have your cake and eat it too. They can't do the things they want to do apart from God's rule and reign and expect life to just continue as normal. And so here we get to see the outcome, the consequences, the retribution was the word I have used to title this section, retribution and redemption. And remember, retribution just simply means the paying back of what is right. We're going to read here what was the right payback the right response of God to these choices. And so last time we started by looking at verses 14 and 15, God's pronouncement to the serpent. And we saw that in verse 14, God cursed the serpent to maintain a permanent status of humility and subjugation in this world. In verse 15, we see God pronouncing that from this moment forward, human history will be marked by a constant conflict between good and evil with each side striking blows at the other. We talked about that. I won't rehearse it all this time. Now we're coming to verses 16 and 19. And now we get to see God's pronouncement against Adam and Eve. What do they get as the right payback for their choices? What is the fitting, deserved paycheck for their rebellion against God? That's what we see laid out for us here in these four verses. But before we can look at that, before we can answer the question of what this new world, uh, their new life in this uh, world of sin that they have built for themselves is going to look like, before we can answer that, we need to really start by reminding ourselves of what life was like for them before Genesis 3, before sin, just in case we've forgotten. And if I had to stop and summarize everything that we saw in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis 3 and describe their life prior to the fall, prior to sin, I would do it with three words. Number one, I would use the word rest. Prior to Genesis 3, we saw that Adam and Eve lived a life of rest. And I don't mean rest here in the sense of like sleep, or relaxation, or lack of work. Remember that Adam is given a task to do. He has to work and keep the garden. So I don't mean rest as opposed to work. If I don't mean that, what do I mean? Well, I mean rest in the sense that they had nothing to worry about. They lived a life completely free of anxiety and fear. You know, sometimes we'll talk about someone uh, being a carefree person. As a figure of speech, meaning they're happy-go-lucky, that they don't seem like anything's bothering them in this world. But the reality is none of us are ever carefree. We may not focus on them, and they may not be as severe from time to time, but all of us have cares and burdens that we carry around. Not, not so for Adam and Eve prior to the fall. They were truly carefree in the most sincere sense of that word. And if you think about it, you'll quickly understand why I would use the word rest to describe their life. It's because they lived under God's direct care, guidance, and provision. He he was directly involved in caring for them, in protecting them, in guiding them in every way. He was ruling and reigning over them. And so what could they possibly fear? What could they possibly need? What could they possibly worry about in that life? They were truly at rest. Number two, I'd use the word harmony. 
to describe their life before the fall. They were in perfect harmony with each other, perfect harmony with God. There was no sense in which anything was separating them either from each other or from God. And as you think back in our study, think to chapter 2, verse 25, about their nakedness, how it simply is a visual reminder of the fact that there's nothing in between them. Nothing between them and God. Nothing separating, nothing dividing them. They are completely exposed and are unashamed. The the key phrase that Moses gives us there. Perfect harmony. Number three, I'd use the word life. Because as we saw in chapter one, that was what God had made, right? A world that he could fill with abundant life. Adam and Eve were designed to live life to its fullest and most satisfying extent possible. Again, in the real sense, in the genuine sense of that word, we think we can live a full life now, but we'll never be able to do it. Adam and Eve could have. They would be a part of a world that was teeming with life. They themselves were going to be a part of that by multiplying and being fruitful and filling the earth. You see all these concepts in Genesis 1 and 2. They were going to live an abundant life. This was the world they knew. This was the world that they got to experience for some length of time there in Genesis, uh, prior to Genesis chapter 3. And it's this world that's about to change with God's pronouncement here in verses 16 to 19. And I want you to notice specifically what's changed between from the beginning of chapter 3 now to the near the end of it. Whereas before they lived in rest, now they're going to live in pain. And you see this word pop up three times here in these verses. You see it in verse 16. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You see it again in verse 17 as God says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so both Adam and Eve are given a pronouncement of pain. But what you need to know here is what this word pain is referencing. Because when you first read that word, you probably assume that what's being described here is physical pain. In other words, hey, Eve, because you sinned, now having babies is going to hurt a lot, okay? Hey, Adam, because you sinned, now, the whole process of having to till the ground and, and plant and, and reap your crops, it's going to physically hurt. We, we automatically think of physical pain when we read these verses. But, but what's interesting is that the word that God uses here doesn't normally refer to physical pain. It can occasionally. You see that in the Old Testament. But more often than not, the Hebrew word here refers more to emotional or spiritual pain. It refers to the anguish of the soul, of difficulty in general in life or whatever circumstance you you might be looking at. It doesn't really have so much to do with the physical sensation of pain. Do, Do you understand the difference in the two concepts? And so the context of these verses here, particularly verse 16, seems to confirm that that's exactly what God has in mind here. Not physical pain, but emotional anguish. I think there's a a, a poor translation choice that's been made here in verse 16. You see the word childbearing there? I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. What do you think of when you see the word childbearing? You think of 
labor and delivery, right? That's natural first thought. But the Hebrew word that's used there doesn't actually have anything to do with labor and delivery. It's actually the word for conception. That I will greatly multiply your pain in conception. It's not looking at the end of the process. It's looking at the beginning. Now, you know, not to state the obvious, but the beginning of the process normally isn't the one that's associated with physical pain, is it? Normally it's the opposite. That's the part that's associated with physical pleasure. And so how can God say that he will multiply a woman's pain in conception if he's talking about physical pain? That, that doesn't really make any sense. But if I apply some of these clarifications that I'm giving you to, to try to make this verse, uh, make you understand it a little better, then I think we begin to see exactly what God is saying here. He says, I will surely multiply your anguish and difficulty in conception. In anguish and difficulty, you shall bring forth children. What, what God is talking about here is difficulty in the entire process of reproduction. Now, Eve, brand new questions that you've never had to think about before are going to be very much pressing on your mind. Well, will I be able to get pregnant? Will, will the child inside me be healthy? Will everything go right? Will, will it come out with a deformity or a disability? Will it survive till birth? Will I survive the birth process? All these brand new questions, all this emotional and spiritual, and yes, I even think physical anguish and difficulty in the whole process of reproduction are now introduced. The woman will no longer be carefree in the process of reproduction, which is what I assume she would have been beforehand. There would have been no worry, no fear, no anxiety whatsoever in that entire process. Now, now, this is all the new state of life. This realm which is uniquely hers is going to be marked by pain, not rest. And you see that the man has his realm too. Because of his sin, the ground is cursed because of him. And the result of this curse is that the man, <coughs> excuse me, that the man will now, in pain, eat of the ground all the days of his life. And you, you, if you want to understand why this, is, this would be a point of anguish for him, remember that prior to this, what was his food? What was his source of food? It was the fruit of the trees of the garden that who had provided? God himself. And so God had directly provided for his daily sustenance, and now it's like, okay, Adam, guess what? You've got a whole new set of questions to deal with too. Will you be able to plant enough food to feed yourself and your family? Will the crops grow? Will insects or weather or animals come and destroy them? What happens if uh, you don't plant enough? What happens if something happens to the crop? Will you starve? See, before Adam was able to rest in God's provision for him, now if he rests, he starves. The big difference, big difference in the two. All the things that he used to be able to rest in and trust in and, and look to for his care are gone. These are things he never had to worry about prior to sin. But now, now this will characterize this realm of his responsibility for the rest of time. And what stands out to me here is that you, as you look at both pronouncements, both to the woman and to the man, two things are in common each of them. Number one, they are both uniquely suited to each person's unique realm of responsibility. 
One for the woman, one for the man, both unique to them. And number two, they both have to do with productivity. Whether it's the productivity of the womb or the productivity of the earth. In both senses, life has changed. The ability to make new life is now filled with anxiety and difficulty. The ability to simply sustain life by feeding yourself is now filled with anxiety and difficulty. Now that they've overthrown God's rule and reign, all the rest is gone. Worries and burdens are now theirs to bear. Second, whereas before they lived in a world of harmony, now they live in a world of conflict. A world of conflict. And we saw this a little bit last time in God's pronouncement against the serpent about how he's describing a a conflict that will occur between the forces of good and evil for the rest of human history. But but here, we see that there will be a different and more specific type of conflict that's going to go on between man and woman. And you see this in the second half of verse 16. God says to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And like me, you may have heard various explanations of that verse over time, people saying it means this or that, and there's a lot to consider here. I'll be honest, it's a very difficult verse to interpret, and the reason why it's so hard to interpret is because of this one word here in the text, the word desire. See, normally, when you're trying to interpret the scriptures and you want to do it well and you want to be faithful to the text, when you come to something, you try to compare it to all the other times you see it used, see it talked about throughout the Scriptures. Well, just naturally then, the more things you have to compare, the, the more certain you can be about your, your interpretation. The less you have to compare, the, the, more, the more uncertainty you feel. Well, this word here, it only shows up three times in the Old Testament. And it's a very unusual word for desire. If I had to give you a definition that I think would make sense of all three usages, it would be something like this. And I don't really like the word I'm going to use, but I don't know a better word to use for it. I think it has to do with almost like an animalistic desire. Like one that's instinctual, intrinsic. And you see this as you look at the usages. For example, you see it used one time in Song of Solomon chapter 7. In the Song of Solomon 7, Solomon in the first like seven, eight, nine verses is talking about in very erotic terms the body of his wife. It's graphic how he describes it. And by the time you get to verse 10, she chimes in now at this point and says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And, and if you want to read that verse the right way, you have to read it with like the sultriest voice you can muster. Because if you don't, you're not understanding what she's saying. She's saying, he wants me now. He wants to own me, to have me, to master me, to conquer me. It is a highly sexually charged term there in in Song of Solomon chapter 7. That's what I meant when I said animalistic, intrinsic, instinctual, like he needs her now. You see it a second time used. And before I move on, let me say, obviously in that context, it's a good thing to desire like that, right? It's good for a husband to want his wife, to need her, to desire her in that kind of a way. And so in this context, Song of Solomon 7, 
It's used in a positive light. You see it used a second time in Genesis 4, and you can turn there, I'm going to put it on the screen, whatever you want to do. This one is particularly helpful because it's Moses writing again. So he writes Genesis 3, he's going to use it again in Genesis 4. It's going to help us understand, and the one in Genesis 4 is strikingly similar to how you see it used in Genesis 3. But in verse 1 he says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell, which means that his whole countenance changed. Something internal was happening in his heart, and now his, his attitude and responses to Abel are, are mark, markedly different. And so verse 6 the Lord said to Cain, hey, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Look, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Again, notice how similar that is in terms of the wording and the, the structure to what you see in Genesis 3. But this time, this time it's sin that's desiring Cain. It wants him. It wants to own him, to master him, to control him. And God is coming to him here in a warning, saying, look, sin wants you. Don't you understand what's happening Sin desires your heart. It wants to destroy you. You must rule over it. You must fight against it. You must dominate it. You must not be conquered by it. This is the warning that God gives to Cain. And of course, we all know that it's an important one because if Cain fails to fight this battle, then the results will be murder. And that's, what exact, that's exactly what happens. I brought you here, though, so you could see again how this word for desire is being used in this almost instinctual, animalistic way to just want to own and conquer something else. Well, you turn back to chapter 3, and I think that helps us understand verse 16 quite a bit. Because God here is simply making a statement of what life will be like here in this new world of sin from this point forward. On the one hand, you see that Eve's desire will be for Adam. And there is no sexual connotation in that comment. You say, well, they were just talking about reproduction, right? Yes. But remember that everything in this verse is negative. There's no sense of positive or good or right here in any of these words that we're reading in verse 16. Everything here is negative. And this desire, however it manifests itself, is not going to be a positive thing. She's going to want to master him, to conquer, to have, to own, to usurp. That, that's the concept that's being communicated here in this way that doesn't want to be mastered herself. She, she wants to be the one ultimately in control, but on the other hand, Adam's going to rule over her. And I don't care what you've heard in the past about that phrase, this is not a defense of loving male leadership, okay? There, there's no sense in which this is a loving concept here. 
This is saying that he wants to dominate her. I could explain to you male dominance as a general cultural trait throughout history, I think, from from this verse. That you have described for us here a conflict between the sexes that will go on until the end of time. Remember, prior to this, they had been made for each other. That, That loving harmony that God had made them to experience is now gone. They were made to complement one another, to help one another, to complete one another. But now, instead of that loving harmony, what do they have? They have conflict that's going to be characteristic for the rest of human history. Number three, whereas before they had life, now they have death. And you see that here, particularly in verse 19. Two times, in fact, you see it. The first time it's stated in a very assumptive way. It says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. He just throws it out as kind of like a nonchalant comment. You're going you're gonna to eat bread by the sweat of your own face till you're, till you're dirt again. Very assumptive. As if it's certain that it will definitely come to pass. And maybe, maybe Adam is taken aback by that because God turns around and says it a second time, this time in a predictive way or a prescriptive way. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, it's certain. It's definite. There's no question about what's going to happen. Death has entered the world. And from this point forward... Their condition's terminal. And you understand that when we were in chapter 2, and God is saying to them, look, don't eat of this tree, because in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Obviously, God didn't have in mind, boom, gone. Boom, zapped you, you're dead. God's choosing to work through process and progress, even in their punishment. They start dying then, from that moment forward, their days are numbered. And every second that passes brings them that much closer to death. Life would no longer be eternal and abundant. Now it will be temporary and uncertain. What they had was gone. And now in its place is a new reality that would characterize the rest of human history for all time. Now, understand, you've got these two worlds in front of us. All of us have lived our entire life on this side of the equation, right? Okay, this, this explains everything we experience in life. And our minds just aren't, if they're not wired or not trained to think in these terms, but if you go through life and just think through all the circumstances and realities of, of what you experience, what your family members have experienced, what friends have experienced, you see that our entire life shows that we are directly connected to Genesis 3. Every time we worry about the the health of a baby that we just learned is in the womb, we, we show Genesis 3 stamped all over our heart. Every time someone miscarries or has a stillbirth, we show Genesis 3 stamped all over our life. Every time someone is infertile, 
we show it. Every time someone leaves for work so that they can pay the rent and buy groceries because otherwise they're going to starve, we show it. Every time someone fears the next round of layoffs, we show it. Every time someone can't pay a bill in full or on time, we show it. Every time we argue with our spouse, we show it. Every time we attempt to manipulate to get our way, we show it. Every time we have conflict with friends or family, we show it. Every time our bodies get sick or injured, we show it. Every time a doctor says cancer or diabetes or heart disease, we show it. And then every time a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend dies, we show it. That that this is our life. That every difficulty, hardship, fear, worry, pain, anything like that, all of it can be traced back to these four verses. Did you realize they were that significant? I didn't. But everything in our life comes back to this. And no matter how much we try to uh, ease the pain with technology or medicine, no matter how much we try to resolve the conflicts through counseling or self-improvement, no matter how long we're able to delay death through diet or exercise or treatments, all of us know with certainty that these verses describe our lives and the lives of everyone around us until the end of time. This is who we are. And yet, at the same time, that doesn't mean that we're left without a solution. Because there is a solution. The only problem is, is that it's not one we would have ever thought of, and it's certainly one that we can never do anything ourselves to, to achieve, because Christ is the solution to all these problems in two senses. Number one, in the, in the personal sense, in the immediate sense, for us as individuals, we see that through his death on the cross, he conquered all these things, did he not? So he endured pain so that I don't have to endure pain. He, he put himself in the cosmic conflict between God's righteousness and sin's ugliness so that I didn't have to get caught in the middle of that conflict. He died so that I could live, okay? Christ is the immediate solution for each and every one of us as individuals. And, and you know, I just say this as a general comment. If you don't have Christ as the solution to those things, well then, look very carefully at these four verses because this is all you've got. This is it. You've got pain, you've got conflict, you've got death. There you go, enjoy your life. And, and I'm not trying to be glib with it, but this is all there is for you. But Christ is a solution and provides a solution to these things for us on the individual level. That's great. I hope you all are aware of that. But there's a second sense in which I want you to see this as well. Something, something larger. Something more foundational. Something more programmatic even. You see, through Christ, God was setting out on a plan to put everything back to the way it was prior to Genesis 3. I mean, just... Think about this. He's remaking creation, and so in Christ, one day in the future, what do you see? See that the world will have rest once again. The day is coming where we will have no worry, no fear, no pain, no difficulties, no anguish. All of those things will be gone, and we will be at rest, carefree, once again, 
We see that in Christ, the world will one day be at peace and harmony once again. No more wars. No more battles. No more fights. No more divorce. No more broken homes. No more fractured relationships. Everyone living in perfect harmony with each other and with God once again. And in Christ, death itself will be fully and finally vanquished once and for all. Because even though I know that I have been given eternal life here and now, as long as I'm in this body, death is hunting me. It's hunting me. And one day it will catch me and kill me. But a day is coming when we're going to be given new bodies that are never susceptible to death, never susceptible to sickness or old age, All will be made right and death will be done away with and Christ will be all in all. These verses, chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, they don't just simply affect my understanding of how the world began, nor do they just simply affect my understanding of the world today. What I want you to see is that they also affect our understanding of how the world ends as well. Thus, thus John And Revelation 21 can write this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Because the first one were gone. They were done away with. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just Just like before Genesis 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, it'll be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And and I want you to linger on that last statement for just a moment. That these words are trustworthy and true. Because in Genesis 3, God told Adam and Eve what life would be like in this new world of sin, and what did we find? Sure enough, Everything he said about how life would be from that point forward, it was trustworthy and true, was it not? This is exactly what our world has been filled with ever since. Well, if his words in the past could be trusted, then certainly his words for the future can be as well. See, I started off by reminding you that what we're seeing here is retribution, right? It's the paying back of what is right for their choices. You want to live on your own? You want to overthrow my rule and reign? You want to be rebels? You want to be criminals? You don't want to be under my guidance, care, and provision? Okay. Here you go. You lose rest. You get pain. You lose harmony. You get conflict. You lose life. You get death. These verses are Filled with retribution. And yet, as I step back and I look at the whole scope of God's plan and revelation, I see redemption mixed in as well. That this wasn't the end. 
that even in the midst of this failure, he has a plan ready to make all things new again. And so this becomes our future hope. And, and when I say that, I hope you just don't think, oh, great, well, now I know what the future is you know, it's coming for me. I'm just going to have a good day now, go home and eat lunch and be done with this. Understand that if you're a believer in Jesus, this future hope is also your present reality. You can now, now experience rest once again. When Paul said to us, look, cast your cares on him. Why? For he cares for you. That's Genesis 1 and 2. When a day when there were no cares, when God cared for them, he's inviting us back. When he says that we should love one another as Christ has loved us, and by this all people will know that we're his disciples, what's that? It's harmony, unity in Jesus that existed in no other time since Genesis 3. You're being invited back. When he says that we have been given new life, It's not just a hope for the future, though it is certainly that. It's an invitation to live that new life now. We do that together as one body in Jesus. And while we're still in this body of sin and flesh, we will be hunted by both till our death. Our hope is not merely for a future glorious home. It's for a present reality that is ours by faith alone in Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's the redemption. Do you see it? That's the redemption that's in these verses that we know that ultimately, ultimately, Christ died to set us free from all these things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we see the, re, the retribution that Adam and Eve rightly deserved here in these verses. They chose to abandon your world and live in their own. And we, we watch this unfold before our eyes and our hearts break and we think, oh, if only we had been there, we would have done, done better. We would have made better choices. But the fact of the matter is, is that even though we know these things today, we still choose sin. We're no better. And so our hope can't be in ourselves and some imagined goodness that would have given us the strength to do what they didn't do. We have no hope in ourselves. All of our hope rests in you. And Lord, we see that as we stop and we look at the grand scheme of Scripture and we look at all the things that you have told us are coming, that one day we know you're going to set all things right again that you will bring rest and harmony and life back to this world. Not, not this one, but a new one that you're going to bring with you when you come and that we will get to experience that. But Lord, we don't want to wait. And you've invited us to experience it now. You've given us your spirit within us. You have awakened our hearts. You've taken those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, and you have made us alive today. God, will you please, please help us live this new life. To cast our cares on you, to rest in you. 
to live in harmony with one another and with you through the death of your Son. Lord, we, we cannot do these things on our own. We lived our lives prior to you proving that. And yet now here we stand, forgiven through the death of Jesus. So Lord, we ask that your Spirit will give us the strength to do what otherwise we could not. To experience the, the hope of the future now. So that we can give evidence to all those around us that we have been changed by the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for these words. Though they break our hearts to know what life is, was going to be like, what it will still be like in the future, what it's like today, we see that ultimately our hope is not in betterment or in escaping from these things. No, it's our hope's in you or we have no hope at all. And so we thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We thank you, Jesus, for your death. Help us to live lives worthy of that today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.